Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off the cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey, music nerds, welcome to the show. This is episode 112 with my guest today, the great upright bassist, side person, and composer Victor Kraus. I hope everyone is getting by all right. Things are moving along here. I'm uh, pretty excited and nervous to start a new studio build here at Henhouse headquarters that's been a year or so in the making, uh, finding someone to do the plans and the build and getting a loan in place and frankly just building up the nerve to get my studio built here after moving across town to East Nashville. And for the last year or so I've just been mixing and recording remotely and haven't needed a space to do anything more than that. But that's starting to change and I think the time has come. So I'm diving in and that's what's happening here. I think I might document the process a little bit. Uh, the They're going to start demoing some of the old walls and stuff next week. So if you're interested in such things and studio building and whatnot, keep your eye on my YouTube page and I will probably post some videos of that process as it goes along. I should also mention that I'm going to be releasing three new albums next year starting in March. Why three? I don't know. It just happened. I just recorded a whole ton of stuff last year and I'm going to put it all out. And they are finished, but I don't really have enough money to print the vinyl. I do want to print vinyl, and it's expensive. So anyway, I started a, a Kickstarter campaign to basically pre-sell the vinyl. And if you would like a copy of some of my new music, I would greatly appreciate it if you would go and have a look and consider a pre-order. It's all right on the front page at stevedawson.ca. And before we get going this week, I would just like to thank the recent financial supporter of the show, who chipped in over the last week and or a couple weeks, I guess, and we couldn't do it without you. So thanks to Marcy Loomis. Much appreciated. All right. Today's guest is Victor Kraus, another fellow Nashvillian and, and someone that's been on my radar for a good many years now, originally due to his involvement in a string of Bill Frizzell records that were huge for me. Those were uh, Gone Just Like a Train, Nashville, Good Dog, Happy Man, and Dis Farmer. That's not in their correct order, but those are the records that really did it for me. And his sound is massive and, and, and unmistakable on those records. And I was reminded of that actually just yesterday when I was testing out some new speakers and I put on Blues for Los Angeles off Gone Just Like a Train. Holy crap. Put that one on and crank it. You will not regret it. Anyway... Victor's also made some really cool solo records. He made a wicked duo record that you should check out with a harpist named Maeve Gilchrist. It's called uh, Vignette, I think. And um, not to mention, he's played on countless sessions for artists like Jerry Douglas, Dolly Parton, Peter Rowan, Sarah Jarose, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, The Chieftains. And to cap it all off, he's held down the bass chair in Lyle Lovett's band for well over 20 years, going on 25, might even be 25, I can't remember. Uh, and his little sister is Alison Krauss, not too shabby of a resume for Victor. His sound, touch, and tone are totally unique, and I wanted to talk to him about how he plays, how he approaches sessions, some of the nerdy points about his gear, uh, his new studio that he's just put together in Nashville, and lots more. Uh, you can see what Victor is up to at victorkraus.com. That's Victor with a K and Kraus with a K. victorkraus.com. 
And without further ado, here is my conversation with Victor Kraus. So I've got a new season of this podcast starting next week, actually with Peter Rowan, who you've played with. And um, Oh, God, yeah, that's great. He's got a few tales, that guy. Yeah, boy, that was fun. That was a interesting run with him. I, I enjoyed it. I was thinking what did you that. what did you do with him? Like, were you in his band for a while, or what? Yeah, what yeah. The... I mean, it was like it was one of the first when I moved from uh, from Champaign. He was kind of like my first um, guy that I was touring with when I first moved to Nashville, and uh, and uh, you know, I guess it was about it was just about a year and a half that I did stuff with him and it was one of my favorite concerts ever was one we did a Telluride and it was the, and, and that actually it was, uh, um, it was recorded and then, and it was actually put out as a record, but it was uh, Telluride in 93. And so it was Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, um, uh, Larry Adamaniuk on drums and, yeah. and uh, Kester Smith. And we just kind of like did his greatest hits and it was just, like a big rock show this is yeah. like one of the best shows i could yeah one of my favorite shows ever how did you hook up with him like was he did you just run into him around nashville or well no i i ended up um my uh, when i first moved to town you know i was i was i went and did um i would go out uh, on certain tours just to hang out with my uh with my sister and um and i i think i think he was opening for her. Oh, okay. Or I can't remember which one, which one it was. So this would have been like 92, 93. Yeah. They shared the same management company, Keith Case and Associates. Oh, okay. And uh, they, you know, kind of put a good word in for me. And yeah. Yeah. And so then I, I would come up and play on a couple of tunes on Allison's set and they said, Oh, okay, well that sounds good. And he seemed like, you know, like, well, you know, he was always kind of, willing to try different things and I ended up kind of having like a formal audition with him later on and we started playing together and it's really fun. So some of those guys that you mentioned, Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas are people that you've had long standing playing relationships with now, you yeah. know, like 25, 30, whatever it is, 30 years later. Yeah. Uh, was that kind of your first exposure to those guys or did you, did you know them from earlier? From I knew it from prior, yeah, just, especially you know for my sister working with them and and uh but uh you know always kind of i didn't have that much contact with them and then other you know other than kind of, you know just saying well okay i'm i'm the i'm associated with being you know the sibling of the one who's already has a very credible career right. you yourself in a, in a little bit and and uh um yeah so that was kind of my my first time of being kind of like okay this guy's okay you know right. or, they thinking okay that I'm okay, and um, yeah, and then obviously when I started working with Lyle Lovett for years, you know, we would then play a lot together, and and pretty much right at the same time that uh, I was starting with Lyle, uh, the trio with uh, Douglas Berenberg Meyer, you know, the thing they did with oh yeah, them. yeah, that was hop skip and wobble. Is that the yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. They weren't going to do that anymore, and then um, they kind of asked if I'd want to try doing like a version of that. And so I did some stuff with, with Jerry and Russ. And oh, okay. that didn't really turn into, you know, like I wasn't then like the partner of, of that trio, but uh, you know, we, we did some stuff together and then uh, certain years I'd be in Jerry's band and, right. uh, and I couldn't do it, you know, for a little while and then somebody else would do it. And then 
then they couldn't do it. And then I would come back and do start being, I'd be in his band again, which was always, you know, it was always more fun to be in his band than not in his band. <laughs> it's so interesting with some of those guys who like, you know, Frizzell comes to mind who I, I want to talk about in greater length in, yeah, yeah. in a bit, but, uh, and Jerry Douglas is another guy in Sam Bush who, you know, f- from somebody who's like a music fan and just sort of watching and like aware to a certain extent of what's going on, but not keeping super close tabs on everybody's career. It just seems so wild to me how crazy little configurations will just keep popping up through time. Like I was I was sort of lo- going down the Victor Cross rabbit hole this morning on YouTube and I found a clip of you and Jerry Douglas and Omar Hakim playing together. And it's like, where the, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> you know, I, I try to figure out how that, that came about. I think there was somebody who, uh, um, I think it was either management that that kind of thought that, that might be a fun, you know, configuration to do. That was really, yeah. really fun. And, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of think of myself as, as a rock guy a lot of the time. I like playing loud. Right. And, and, you know, and so that was kind of our, you know, giant monster band. And Jerry likes playing loud too. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, especially with the lap steel and just yeah. being, was such a fun pairing. Was that particular configuration, like just sort of taking that as a random example, like was that something that you guys were touring with like as a trio for a while, or was that just like some weird festival throw together thing that happened? We did. uh, We actually did quite a bit of dates with that. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. And and it was, I mean, not, not like for long stints of time, but we would do, uh, I, I think it kind of, Boy, it existed for I think close to a year, but wow, okay, uh, just like random dates or little short short runs. You never made a record like that. No, the only thing that um, there's two songs on the Traveler record, yeah, that have that. Speaking of Omar Hakim, um, I am interested, like from your perspective, about uh, you know you've played with such amazing drummers throughout your career. Um, you know, Keltner comes to mind, Omar Hakim. Um, Steve Gadd, Steve Jordan, um, you know, those guys don't play necessarily with, with upright players a lot. Um, but I, could you maybe just first talk a little bit about your experience playing with some of these guys and what you love about certain drummers and maybe who some of your favorites are to have played with over the years? Well, another one is one really fun is, um, Russ Conkle for sure. Just with, uh, with Lyle and yeah. And- Boy, I mean, they all bring different things, and um, you know, and Matt Chamberlain's another one that's yeah. really great too. I don't know, like with Russ, it's almost like you know, and you hear those records, you know, that he all, you know, his library of work. I, I remember I recorded with him first before playing with him live, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and it, and it just, you know, it, it just sounds completely like him. It's his touch. It's his sense of. It's it's almost some of those those fills that he invented, you know, that became the blueprint for so many drummers, you know, right. that, that come after him. And and uh, but I remember when we played live together, I was just like, okay, well, you know, this sounds like Russ Kunkel in the studio, and it's great. And then we played live, and it's like, oh, it still sounds like him, you know. It's <laughs> a, you know, it's a, the beautiful tom sound and the beautiful snare, and and you know, and um, just his. Um, sensitivity to to the to the person he's so he's like you know like one of the ultimate support players mm-hmm. and uh, you know i mean like if you think of one element you think of the the uh, you know the rods on on the toms and those tom fills that are just 
so expressive and meaningful, you know, that's probably one of the things that I've, you know, if you think classic. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's just so, you know, it's just so easy. Steve Jordan, um, there were, before Russ started playing with him live all the time, Steve had um, did a couple of fill-in dates for Lyle. Oh, and wow. I, and I had actually recorded with him a couple of times before asking him to play on my first solo album. Yeah. And, um, you know, just that, just that kind of that command and, you know, and, and, you know, and what you think of as the snare drum, you know, that total conviction and I'll say, and uh, we've worked together a little bit since then. Um, but you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of like, okay, you want, I don't know. It, it's, uh, what you would expect it to feel like, you know, right just after hearing him on so many records and just his, his whole personality that comes, comes through in his playing. And I don't know, it's probably the same thing with all of those guys, you know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's almost like, um, you know, if they're like hiring a, a brilliant actor, you know, that you want, okay, well, I want this person. I want it to be this person. And, and, and it is that they can't help. <laughs> yeah, totally. I would imagine that when you first played with some of those guys, you were you were kind of unknown at the time. Like now, you know, if somebody's going to do a gig and you're on it, it's like, okay, Victor Krause, they know what they're in for. But <laughs> but in, you know, in the early 90s and stuff, you were, you were starting to play with a lot of these guys and they wouldn't necessarily have known of you or whatever at that point. Um, was that like, how did you feel about that? Like as a, musically, was it intimidating or like, did you feel a real obligation to like lock in with the drummers because you were playing with such crazy good. Oh gosh. Um, you know, that, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, like I think some people were more intimidating than others. Uh, but at, at the same time, I, you know, I kind of knew I had to, I had to deliver or I, or I didn't, I didn't really think of it that much, you know, it's just like, well, here's, here's a great musician and let's see what, see what happens, you know? And, and most of the time it was just kind of like, well, okay. I mean, they're so great. And, you know, you just kind of can't help but feel like, well, the answers are all kind of laid out here for you, you know, and here's what you do. And um, great drummers have a way of doing that, don't they? Yeah, like yeah. Sort of laying it out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's just like, um, yeah, it's just like, okay, well, I can plug into this. And, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's really, really fun, you know. And uh, um, I was thinking about the first, you know, and most of these guys are really nice. Right. Yeah. You know, that and I mean, if, if not all of them, you know, where it's just, um, you know, the, it's not so much what you bring as a musician, but it's just that you're easy to deal with as, yeah. as, as a human being. And they're, they're not going to go, okay, well, I'm so-and-so and I, I can, you know, rest on everything that I've done previous to this and have every right to be not a nice person or, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know if that's the way to go, but, uh, but uh, they, um, you know, they can afford it, but they're not, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a recurring theme through, through history basically is like a lot yeah. of the really successful, great players are also super nice people. And that's yeah. what I find too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Could we just talk a bit about your space there? Cause uh, I've seen some, pic you know, you've, you've been, you've been good about like posting the progress of that oh. on Instagram <laughs> and stuff. And I'm just curious, like, partly about the space, but also like what your intentions are and how, how you, kind of tailored it towards what you're doing these days, like as far yeah. as the setup goes and the equipment. Well, we, we built this space here. Um, love those, love those ceilings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's about 18 feet tall. Wow. Um, 
and uh, you know, we got diffusers and um, um, sound panels and all that kind of stuff all over the place. And um, I'm a bit of a you know gear junkie. Uh, <laughs> I can see. Uh, um, just lots of old synthesizers and pedals and guitars and um, um, and in fact, actually, there's less stuff in here than usual because uh, I'm actually today uh, later this afternoon in this. I don't know where, where I'm. Oh yeah, this space right here. I'm putting in a Gretsch set. Um, oh, cool. Um, so I can have, uh, you know, so there'll always be drums here. Is it all one room, or is there another room attached? Yes, to it? There, okay. there's another room here. I'll go. Um, we we have it set up as three three different rooms, and then uh, there's a bathroom. But um, we've recorded drums in this space before, but it's more or less a lounge. Oh, you wow, know. cool. Um, but we have it wired so. Drums do sound pretty good in here, uh-huh. and uh, and then I should have unlocked this, but then, um, just a separate isolation for for vocalists and then anything that really needs to be separated. But uh, oh, you got a few axes there, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of have a bad habit, as a lot of musicians do. You know, in terms of gear, uh, that's a good investment, man. Yeah, well, that's what I tell my wife. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's better than playing the damn stock market. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't play golf, and I usually don't spend my per diem on the road to buy stuff. But you know, we we had it, um, we had it in our house for years. All this stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and it was kind of time to have not have clients be in the house and right. And uh, we always wanted to have. Uh, you know, we live we live kind of in a in a, you know we live close to kind of Vanderbilt and Belmont University. So it's yeah. a little bit of a noisy neighborhood. So I'd have to, since most of the time that I record the big bass, you know, the, the upright bass that I, um, you know, I'd have to really kind of pick hours and tell people to be quiet in the house and, yeah. and you know, and uh, so much construction all the time that uh, we really needed to get it out. And we've been wanting to do this for years and years. And so, so what, so is that space a a freestanding building somewhere or where are you? I'm just in the back of our house. So it's a freestanding building. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's, it's a detached structure from your house. Yeah. It was, uh, we're really happy with how it turned, turned out. And did you build it from scratch or was that a building that was already there? Yeah. We built it from the ground up. Oh, wow. That's a huge undertaking. Yeah, it was, it was big. It was, uh, um, I think we had started plans for it as early as late 2017. Okay. Thought, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. And then we decided, well, okay. <laughs> and then uh, by the time we started breaking ground, it was it was about, a, I'd say about 14 months. Okay. That's actually not bad, all things considered. Yeah. But just lots of decisions to be made, you know, with the, uh, you know, the extent of soundproofing and yeah. like all this, all these things that, you know, end up adding up. You know, oh my god! And um, but boy, we're glad we did it. Is the finished effect exactly what you'd hoped? Like as far as the sound proofing goes in the neighborhood and all that? Yeah, this room you really can't hear anything. Cool. Which is wonderful, and and the vocal room has has been really great. And mm-hmm. that, so you know, so we did the floating floor and the double. You know, the, none of the none of the walls are touching the um um um. You know, the the framing and right clip system so and there's so much like a information out there these days and b like bad information with all that stuff too right you have to really sift through it all yeah i've but been we, through it a few times 
Really? Yeah. 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 We, we had a great consultant uh, kind of guide us through this week. We, we were originally going to do a prefabricated wall material that had an inherent good DB masking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we found out that we couldn't really do it that easily here. And so I, I think that was probably the right thing anyway. And, and so that's when we hired the consultant. Yeah, I'm sort of like I moved into this place um, about two months ago. And uh, I'm going to be building out sort of a, a room kind of not entirely unlike what your situation is, I guess, but slightly different. And so he was over and checking it out, giving me some pointers and yeah. Just seeing if he's a good fit, but he seems like a good guy to, you know. Yeah, he's, he's again like the personality thing is like important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he'll give you different options, and you know, we like, you know, like he he did a couple of bids for the soundproofing. You know, some of the numbers you always have to check numbers just to see if, you know, if there's yeah. an easier way you can, you know, easier on the bank way to yeah. do it. And uh, you know, and so he was happy to come back, and he did a he actually did an ultrasound of the room by you know doing a clap test to see how much decay there was. And Can you tell me a bit about recording your bass? One of the most interesting things that I find about you is how identifiable your tone is. Like both, I know there's sort of like, I kind of think of you as like a, there's like a studio uh, Victor and then there's a live Victor where it's more of like a, <laughs> like a wall of sound. Uh-huh. Uh, but in the, stu- if we're just talking about studio stuff, if you're, if you're say doing, I mean, I don't even know if you do much of that kind of stuff, but like bass overdubs for somebody Oh, on yeah, a project yeah. on your own. Um, yeah. What what kind of things do you look for in a bass sound, and and how do you how do you go about recording yourself? Gosh, well, uh, yeah, actually, well, I do do a lot of the the stuff we're over, especially during the pandemic. You know, yeah, lots and lots of that. But uh, um, I mean, I pretty much do the same thing. I've played. I mean, I've used the same strings, you know, um, same brand of strings, but I, I change them a lot. You know, do you, so you use steel strings or gut strings yeah, or what's your steel strings. And, um, you know, so I change them like every like three to four months and uh, which keeps them kind of bright. The, the, the fundamental pitch kind of goes away after that. Okay. That's, that's um, a regular change for an upright bass. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I think it, I mean, I've, I've been told that that's a lot, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, uh, um, but I use the, you know, I use the old, um, Fishman BP 100 pickup, uh, into a Demeter tube direct, um, vacuum tube direct. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then, um, usually mic it with you with, uh, I usually like it kind of pointed to kind of, kind of halfway between the, I, I don't know the bases are inside. I would show you, um, but, um, um, kind of near the, the treble F hole yeah. above the bridge a little bit. And, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of, I, I like it a bit focused sounding because it's always something, you know, to, to you, you know, it's so much more difficult to create high end versus yeah. low. End. And so I would, I would much rather it start in a point where it's really kind of clean sounding. And if you need more low end, then kind of work from that. So most of the time, if I'm doing something, it's one mic. Sometimes, you know, engineers will put two mics, one that's a little higher. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of noisy on the fingerboard, oh, yeah. um, you know, near the, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I am a little noisy, so I don't, <laughs> I, you know, most of the times they put it up high, they end up kind of ducking it. Um, but, you know, like either some kind of large diaphragm microphone, you know, like a, you know, 47, 67 or 87. And, uh, or, you know, if you want it even 
I, I mean, I have great luck with using a, a 414. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the time, uh, I've been using one of those those um, ear trumpet labs, Nadine yep. microphones recently. And that's just nice because it's always in the right spot and you don't have to worry about. That's changing. the one that, that actually like go, clips onto your bridge? Yeah, yeah, it's just right, right under the bridge. And I've I actually been using that quite a bit for the last, um, gosh, probably about a year now. Just, you know, if, if I'm doing something at home and I, and, and it's, just easy to do it kind of quickly and yeah that's been that's been great oh, and it's just cool. yeah um but yeah any of those mics and then you know like some people will put it like a little the b and k microphone just pointed right at the bridge or mm-hmm. you know it just depends on what they're doing and and i like the mic placement there's kind of an area that there's a sweet spot on on the, i use this juicic bass which is a um check instrument mm-hmm. i've kind of probably it's probably my most distinctive you know if there's a distinctive sound yeah that i one since 95 um pretty much like on 99 percent of recordings okay <laughs> and, uh, um so it uh you know it it's you know it's interesting with placement of the microphone i, I you know i like it close enough to the bridge um that it's almost i always kind of when I've, if somebody's asking about this to kind of um, compare it to a rhythm and treble pickup on a, on a Les Paul, you know, oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. So like the higher you get, the more, you know, you're going to get a little rounder and the lower actually too, you're going to start getting rounder. So if you kind of get one, that's kind of like a, it's almost thinking of as a middle position, you're going to kind of get a nice both if you're using one microphone. Do you have any preferences? Like I've, I've talked to um, Dave Pilch on this show and, and Dennis Crouch and stuff, and they, they have like really interesting thoughts about where to stand in a room. Like Dave Pilch loves to record into a corner. <laughs> yeah, his, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, he, he loves his living room. Like the, the corner of his living room is his favorite. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have favorite spots? Or are you pretty easy going as far as like where the sound sounds best to you in the room? I like the mic really kind of close to the instrument, you know, and, okay. and um, you know, I, I, I don't always love a room sound that much for it because, it, you know, then it starts kind of complicating right. you know, frequencies. And, and this room I'm in is really dead, so it's, um, it doesn't matter so much. But if like in a, in a particular studio, you know, like if, if we can, you know, if, if, a, if a carpet is available or if it isn't too splashy, you know, and, and I, yeah, totally. I've done that thing with the David is talking about going toward a corner because then you've already got a, you know, get a kind of got a, uh, a non-repeating surface right in front of you. And, and, uh, so you know, it almost becomes, you know, it almost becomes a really small room, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, and that is one thing I, I really do like having the mic super close to the instrument. Cause I, I don't, I don't play that loudly. I always call it embouchure or whatever, you know, I, I don't right. get it that hard. So, um, so if it's it's not going to splash the room. What about your live sound? Like I've heard that you've got up to like four or five pickups on that thing. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I but I, I I I split it in different ways. So so like the um they, you know BP one hundred uh, the one that I was talking about the Fishman, it's like their first design they made, which I really like still, and I, I like that one because it's it's you know it's a very mid rangey kind of pointed sound which is easy to shape and so i'll send that um is, know, is that a pickup that's an under under bridge pickup 
it's uh, it's actually right on the edge of the 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 pickup you know right on the edge of the bridge okay it's like it sits between the um uh, you know it, there's one that sits between the g and d string and the other one sits at the between the the a and the e string and so it's a very pointed sound that um allows you to just you know it's it's about as like close to the string contact as you possibly can okay. so it's not exactly the most natural sound but you can eq it any way you want and then mm-hmm. but the, then the demeter uh di really kind of just focuses it yeah really kind of focuses it and uh makes it less nasal and harsh sounding and so that combination kind of gives that kind of clarity that i want but then it's still kind of pleasing with the Mm-hmm. the tube on there so that that usually gets fed to the house or okay. i'll ask for a little bit in my monitor as well so i'm getting that kind of kind of mid-range higher detail um then i'm using also <laughs> a um an underwood pickup which was designed in the in the 70s i've heard of those yeah 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 that's like, like the a, classic yeah if you think of ron carter in the 70s that okay and um, so that's it actually sits between the feet and the top. Um, and uh, that kind of sits within the bridge. So it's, a, it's almost a little bit of a compressed sound, uh-huh. more electric sounding. Okay. Um, and that's kind of uh, lower, lower mid-range and lows. And then, uh, then I run that into a, a small mixer, which then uh, mixes. Um, uh, it's a Beasley uh magnetic he's uh in canada he's um those dang canadians yeah he's on he's way on the um on the eastern side halifax uh, moncton st john's i'm i'm canadian i know all the corners yeah yeah I was, <laughs> um I, but uh, he makes this great giant uh magnetic pickup oh. uh stat so i attach it right to the end of the fingerboard and so I mix the between that and the. Um, how does it how does it attach to the fingerboard? It's it's this very complicated mount, oh. um, and uh, it's it's like it's it's really a great great bit of engineering, you know. And so mm. it has a clamp that goes on the bottom, uh, underneath the fingerboard, and then also to the sides. Okay. And, um, so I mix that between the Underwood and the Beasley pickup. Wow. So the Beasley is wonderful because it doesn't have really a distinct sound. I mean, if you only use that, it would sound like a big, like a Gibson bass, like an EBO or, or, you know, even a, okay. which is great in itself. But, but if you mix between the two pickup, you can get all of this low end, super loud, you know, nothing is going to feed back with this pickup. And then you get a little bit of detail from the Underwood and then you give the house a bit of, the, um, so you know, it's, so it's really I'm just using three. It's it's like it's eliminated feedback problems, you know, and just being really really loud. And then I use a giant amplifier and yeah. So so what do you like for amps? Like I've seen you playing through a huge stack, like a big yeah yeah. Um, I mean I I, uh, I I used to be with uh, SWR, you know, and use like two four ten cabinets, and now I use yeah. this. Um, uh, Warwick makes this crazy thing that Jonas Helborg designed, um, which is 
you know, and, and if I set it all up, it's almost taller than, than me, you know, and uh, it's like two fifteens with these coaxial horns that wow. face each other uh, deliberately out of phase. So it points one to the floor and then one up. And then there's this other thing that's like a two, two twelve cabinet with also the, the horns. And of course they stopped making it. And um, so I don't know what I'm going to use next if, if it stops, you know, stops working. <laughs> But, but it's like it's two two five hundred watt heads, you know, which with a driven by a preamp that's modeled after like a ten seventy three. It sounds ridiculous, but it's it really is. It's wonderful to be able to control the lower and upper cabinets. And you do that so well. Like, was that how how much of a learning process was that for you? Like, just sort of getting acquainted with playing at the kind of volumes that you're able to play at. God, it was a lot of trial and error for a long time, and, and you know, and I and I used to carry this 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 nine band parametric EQ that was called uh, uh, Mister Tone Controls, which also was a <laughs> it was an SWR product that that um, that they only made for a short period of time, and uh, it was just designed for bass frequencies. It was all this you know you could dial anything out, and so whenever I would like if we did a fly date and and I couldn't bring my amplifier. I'd bring that that uh, EQ, which was kind of like my dialed-in sound. And then, mm-hmm. and then when I got that um, Beasley pickup, the magnetic, I didn't need it anymore because it was okay. just, it totally changed it. And well, it seems like you've sort of cultivated it into a, a sound, like a live sound that I've never seen anybody else really do. You know, like when I th- when I think of. Uh, you know, some of the times that I've seen you, even on, even in small, I've seen you play a, sm- a few small gigs around town here. And even then you're still like ripping through those cabinets and it sounds killer. Oh, you know? thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're from, you're from like Champaign, Urbana area, right? Yeah. 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 In Illinois. Um, can you tell me a bit about growing up around there? Like what was, was bluegrass a big thing in that area? Like how did, how did the Kraus family get into the music racket? Well, gosh. Uh, you know, Champaign is really interesting, and and, and uh, I, um, you know, it's a university town, and lots and lots of. I've played at the Cranert Center quite oh, a few yeah, times, yeah. and man, yeah. that, that place is amazing. It really is amazing, and you know, and and uh, just the the amount of interesting things you could see at any day, you know, and the music department was so strong there, and and you know, and, and still is, you know, like the high schools and are crazy in terms of, hmm. you know, it's devotion to the arts and wow. just taking it seriously. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think if, if I could do what I do here up there, I'd probably still be up there. Mm-hmm. Just, um, and just what, what, it was such an interesting place to live in, you know, and our parents, um, both my sister and I would take us, you know, they would take us to everything you know, like a totally far out, you know, 20th century music concert with, you know, the, with, the, uh, oh, you know, multimedia events. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, it was just readily available there. And, and, um, and both my, you know, for, for my sister and I, our parents asked us, what instrument do we want to play when we both turned five, you know, and, uh, you know, not the, you know, like it was not really a choice or anything <laughs> like this is, Thought, you know, you start buying instrument. And- were they musical? Like, were they? Did they play? Yeah, they dabbled in it. Yeah, I mean, like my my mom's a um, um, an artist, you know, did commercial art, but also painting, and just was like, you know, and does 
um, you know, visual artist. And, and then my dad used to sing in the uh, opera choruses in, oh. at the university productions there, but, but not trained musically in any way. And, and um, but we just, you know, they, they just kind of enrolled us in anything to see what we would take to. And we both, mm-hmm. um, I was definitely not that athletic. My sister was a little more athletic than I was. But yeah, I, yeah. who's older between you and Allison? I am. You are okay. So, but we both really just really liked music, and and um, I started off on piano, and then Allison actually played violin right away. Okay. My, and my parents didn't want us both playing the same instrument, so so I you know I got first choice of piano, and then she, you know, because there's only so many instruments you can play at five, you know. Yeah. Yeah contrabass bassoon or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And did you take to the piano or was it not a thing that you really... I actually did like it. You know, I liked it more after I stopped taking lessons. A lot of people feel that way, I'm sure. Yeah, I didn't like it. You know, and and it was funny. I took piano lessons for five years and um, started, started, um, like he was just teaching me, like at the very end where I knew I wasn't going to do anymore, he was starting to teach me accompaniment stuff like figuring out chords and i loved that mm. and you know like with just like in the last month or something and then after that point i would play piano much more but but i was already starting to get i, I played trumpet a little bit like starting in fifth grade okay and, and then i saw somebody playing bass one time at a middle school concert and i was uh, playing upright bass yeah and i was thinking boy that's neat and you know just because it was like a I mean, I still remember it. I've probably told this story way too many times, but I remember seeing, you know, it was like a, it was a pretty good orchestra program at, at the middle school in just lots and lots of players. And, uh, you know, just everybody's playing violin or maybe viola, maybe one or two cellos, but there was one bass in the center. And it's just like, whoa, that's, you know. <laughs> that's, I know what you mean. Like it's like it's a, like a visual impact thing as well as sonically yeah. appealed to you. Yeah, I just, you know, just when I heard it, it was just like, wow, this is doing something big. So I really started on that right away, and then I also played a little bit of electric bass. But it was, I started on big one, and then and then played, you know, kind of ever since both. So were you like, did you have a teacher, or were you just teaching yourself? Yeah, I did. There was um, there there were a couple of teachers. One who was the uh, who was the head of the bass department at the University of Illinois, who was very intimidating. Okay. Really. Yeah, Ed Krolik was his name. I don't think he's he's no longer with us, but uh, but was that, he like a classical player? Yeah, yeah. But then I ended up getting this teacher named uh, Karen Korsmeyer, who was fantastic, hmm. and uh, and and she kind of gave me this. Uh, she was a jazz player, and uh, gave me this cassette of all, oh, and I still have it, of of all these great bass players like Ray Brown, Oscar Pettiford, Paul Chambers, Charles Mingus. There were certain tunes that I just really loved. And, and she would, you know, she could transcribe the whole thing out. And she was a student. Oh, man. Do you, do you remember what specific tunes were on that tape that really blew oh, yeah, your mind? Yeah. Um, there was um, um, Whims of Chambers, Paul Chambers, um, just a great head on that. Laverne Walk, which was uh, Oscar Pettiford, and then uh, Things Ain't What They Used To Be, which was a duet with um, Ray Brown and Duke Ellington. Did you ever get into that Money Jungle record? I don't know if I know that. Oh, really? It's yeah. Duke, Duke Ellington and 
and Mingus and uh, Max Roach. It's a trio record. Wow. And I just asked because it's like, it's, it's um, Mingus's, for me, like Mingus's greatest bass playing ever. Like he's really, wow. and they're kind of like scrapping apparently during the session. And so there's like so much aggression in the way that he plays. It's really interesting. I thought wow. it's one of Jay Bellarose's favorite records. And uh, oh, wow. I, I figured it would have made it to your eardrums at some point, yeah, but I maybe not. I need to check that out. What, what, what's it called again? Money Jungle. Money Jungle. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, cra- it's a crazy record. It's all Ellington tunes mostly, but it's like, yeah, it's just this trio format that I, that never seemed to have happened again. Wow. Maybe with good reason. <laughs> <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But I, I found out that I, I ended up really loving Ray Brown. Mm-hmm. Like, was probably the most what was it about his playing that really did it for you uh well just the sound like, was just so you know like it played so in tune and and uh um and just i don't know facility and and just there was something about it that was just like i fell in love with the, the record for me that i really you know, like it got me into jazz was um not only the teacher um was uh you know introducing me to Nisa but the the um, night train oh, Oscar night the Oscar train. Peterson yeah yeah was jazz your thing is that what you were most into in in those days or were you like into were you were you playing in any rock bands or anything like that well, yeah yeah you know it was well and I guess I should also mention the bluegrass you know I used to accompany my sister you know, my sister would enter fiddle contests and so, like, was she rocking it, like, right away, like, at age five, six kind of thing? Well, she was doing, like, classical violin, and then what oh. she uh, ended up doing, uh, and, and she actually was in, like, there was a youth orchestra called the National Academy of Arts or something, and Cura, you know, so it was, like, it was crazy amount of stuff that you could do at that time in, in Champagne, And um, there was a, um, the, um, and there was a great teacher, string teacher there, uh, named Leo Pondelec, uh, you know, and he was actually a very intense, but funny guy, you yeah. know, serious students. But then when you met him after, and when he was not in teacher mode, he was fantastic, you know, really. Okay. And um, he had the whole orchestra play Arkansas Traveler. Cool. And, uh, and she really liked that. Yeah. And so that was probably one of the first things that, that introduced her to doing that. And then, and then she got she uh, entered a contest at the county fair in Champaign 
and um, you know, and so it kind of blossomed from that. And you know, my mom would accompany her on guitar, and then I started playing bass. I said, "Well, that'd be fun to do that," you know. And uh, and I became too, I, you know, in some ways, I became a bit of a spaz. You know, I was just like, you know, <laughs> well, I could do this, and you know, it wasn't always the role, you know, appropriate role in that. And so that you know, were you aware of some of the bluegrass bass, like like um, Junior Husky and no, people like that? All. Okay. I mean, I, I became aware of them, you know, from the records that my sister would listen to, you know, yeah. it's like on everything. And, um, you know, and so, um, you know, and I met him when I moved here. He was really sweet. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know, before he passed away. And uh, um, Roy, I, I, I'd never met his dad, but uh, yeah. But yeah, so I uh, became, but uh, yes. Um, um, so I became interested in jazz just because more so as a vehicle, you know, it became fascinating to me on how, what bass was possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not all of it I loved, but, uh, um, but I, I did, you know, I, I, I still feel like that's kind of in my roots from learning so much of it. And, and then when I get to do, yeah, I, I, it's like, Oh, wow, this is, this is familiar and fun. So were there kids your age that could play, that kind of stuff that you were yeah. able to play with. Yeah. Okay. It, it was, there was actually uh, the, the high school jazz band was, was quite good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and um, I actually in high school did one of the college bands, um, uh, you know, when they, they had like bands one through five or something, I think it was yeah. four or five or something, but it was just neat that, that how many people were into it. And there was, there was a great, club in champagne called nature's table that uh was a just a dedicated jazz club that would play you know there'd be happy hours but then there'd be a set that goes from nine until one okay. uh, pretty much every night and um so that was a great place for me to play and learn and just it was it was a scene and um good time to be there did you get to see any of those guys like Ray Brown or like any of the, that generation of players um, play? No, and unfortunately, no, I did see the Basie band, um, but it was right at the end of like Count Basie wasn't there, but I got to see Freddie Green. You know, like he was right. In front oh, of wow. Him, which was great. To Amazing. See. Yeah. Um, and I met Ray Brown in the airport one time. You did? Yeah. And uh, what was that like? It was, it was, uh, I, I just felt like I stumbled and sounded like a little, <laughs> little dork, you know, kid, little kid, you know, just like, I, you know, I, I wish I'd been a little cooler than that, but you know. You, you just stumbled into it like he happened to be there? I saw him and I saw him, you know, he was like, he was at LaGuardia Airport and he was taking his gauge case, you know, um, on his shoulder. And I said, that's right, Brian. You know, and, <laughs> If I don't say anything to him, I'll regret it, you know? Yeah. So I did and I felt it was, it was, um, I don't know. I wish I probably. It wasn't your shiniest moment. No, no. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. You're allowed to have that happen. I mean, yeah. what, what's, what's going to happen anyway? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so after you graduated from high school, it seems like you must've moved to Nashville fairly soon but there's a few years there i guess like did you go to university or yeah i did i uh i went to u of i um uh, university of illinois and you know and i was doing rock bands at the time too which i loved so what kind of what kind of rock bands were you playing in i was in this kind of crazy band uh, called difficult listening <laughs> i love it <laughs> and uh it was like really um 
kind of far out stuff. It was stuff that uh, a friend of mine and I from high school, we rewrote silly songs together and it became, um, you know, there was a group of guys in that group that uh, we played and then, and then it became this band that we actually played out live. So it was all original music, but it was totally kind of berserk sound. Like a lot of times we would kind of compare it to like Frank Zappa kind of stuff. So it was okay. very kind of complicated music. But all the players were like jazz players too, so it was okay. It was, uh, the name was fitting. <laughs> yeah. uh, were you playing upright in that situation, or were you playing electric? Yeah, I played electric in there. Okay, which, you know, I, I love playing electric. I don't get to do it quite as much because I've been kind of people think of me doing the big bass. But yeah, that was that was a good time. So yeah, I I, I finished. I was um, I started off as a. Um, string based performance major, and then I figured out within the first semester that I didn't want to do that, and and uh, oh. um, I didn't. I you know I thought well you know I never thought of myself as an orchestral player, even though it'd be nice to be good at it, but I I, I just wasn't. I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was me. <laughs> yeah, it's good yeah. to realize that. Yeah, and so I ended up finishing in uh, music composition, a theory composition degree at at. Uh, oh, you know, cool. Kind of, it was just like a year after then I thought, you know, I started to uh, kind of visit my sister who was already living here and, you know, obviously doing well by 1991. Yeah. Was her trajectory like, was it already taking off at that point? Oh yeah. Big time. It was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she'd already had a, a couple Grammys and, and. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Starting to play. It's not opening for people playing a lot of, you know, it, it just kind of it, was uh, just getting bigger and bigger at that point. And so I, I would join her on tours and, you know, just for fun. And, and I was like, wow, this, this could be good, you know, to do something. And during that time in college, I did actually go out and tour as a bass player for her for a little while. And, and, oh, yeah. and uh, uh, that was fun, but I, 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 I kind of wanted to finish school, you know, and, and okay. I only did it for a, just for a short period of time. And then, and um, you resigned. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You know, like it, it, I've been asked that question a bunch, you know, why, why don't we play it together more often? And, and, you know, we do on some things, but it's usually, you know, like the, the guy that she has, Barry Bales, who's been with her forever, really is the best fit for, for her band. Right. And, um, and then if we do something that's a little, you know, if it's an Allison project, you know, outside of the band, and um and or or if, if it's another project then then she's nice enough usually to call me <laughs> <laughs> she's got your number still yeah she knows you know, <laughs> for you was there a specific reason for the move to nashville or did, did you just kind of blindly dive in and just say this is like the place where i'm going to find some action yeah well there were there were a couple of thoughts you know like it was uh you know there was always a, a little bit of an allure of california for me uh but I, I was already starting to kind of make some contacts here. And um, Paul Zahn, who was my composition professor, he's, uh, he's, the, um, uh, he's the dad of Andrea Zahn. Mm -hmm. and, um, he, was, uh, he was very encouraging and saying, well, you should move to Nashville and, and play. And, you know, I think it would really work out for you. And, and I, so, you know, he had a kind of like a weekly gig then down there and I'd play down here with him. And then some of the, the allure of what my sister was doing was kind of coming into play. And I thought, well, okay, well, maybe this would be 
pretty fun to make a go out go of it you know right. i, I kind of knew i wanted to play music professionally I, 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 it was interesting i had an interesting balance between i worked for my dad my dad had a real estate firm which was a lot of the time oh, yeah. uh, um you know either campus housing or some investment property and i would do the books there oh and um, right out of college and part of in college. And, and so it was a nice balance between that part of my brain and, and playing music. Right. And, and I like it. Make a few bucks too, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> it was kind of a nice balance of, of playing music that I really liked to do and then also just kind of doing that, which was nice too. So, so what kind of situations were you finding yourself in, in when you first moved here? Well, um, I mean, like what we talked about with Peter Rowan, you know, yeah, they, oh yeah, right. I was kind of there, and then there was some people that kind of knew me, like Jerry. Kind of had me play on an early record of his, and and so, so at that point, did you have much um, recording experience? Like, had you been in the studio? In... I had some, but not not a huge amount. Okay. And, um, and you know, I mean, for me, well, I, well, I guess maybe that's not fair to say. I I, I used to record. I mean, I record myself like you know i had a little fostex x15 cassette recorder cool and, me too yeah you know thousands and thousands of hours of just okay, <laughs> this is when you play you know when you press record you play better you know and, right. and and so in that regard yes i had lots of you know of feeling okay but not in a professional situation no not not a huge amount but but i, I knew what it felt like to have what the red light Man. Right, that's it. That's important. Yeah, and so that that never really intimidated me. I just thought, okay, this is a nicer environment, and somebody else is doing it for me. Right, it's just a glorified X fifteen. Yeah, yeah. I still have. <laughs> yeah, so there was just starting. It was kind of you know, and some people were kind of saying, okay, well, yeah, he's good at this, and and somebody had said that it really it takes. It was Rich Adler who. Uh, engineered um, every time you say goodbye record, the Allison record. Mm -hmm. He said something that was so true. He says, like, when you first move to Nashville, it takes about two years to to start really branching out from the context that you already. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I thought that to be pretty true. And um, and that was a good time to move there, you know, because it was, it was kind of a boom in the re recording and it was actually kind of, Nashville was on its way up. Right. At that, point two uh in terms of being i don't know i mean it seems like every city has its waves you know and it, it was like it had been maybe down and you know and little, like 90s country was becoming huge at that point and so it was a good time to it was a good time to move there you know like a, was there a ton of like local gigging work for you or were you mostly yeah, there was some. okay yeah there was, there was some i mean like uh, singer songwriters and then some people that i'd met through my sister or through um you know, people that I already knew, you know, and handful of some jazz gigs. I, I kind of decided that I, I, um, I wouldn't take necessarily everything. You know, I was kind of looking for a path to kind of either get into recording or doing this kind of work yeah. versus doing everything. And um, not that it was easy to be choosy, but it was kind of like, okay, well, if, if I keep doing one thing that I don't particularly like, it'll just lead to more things that I, yeah, that I don't really like, you know? And so, I mean, if that sounds, well, it doesn't sound arrogant, but it was just. No, no, no. That's totally true. Yeah, yeah, of course. Was there enough jazz situations here for you to feel 
satisfied in that way or not really? I don't know. You know, I didn't really end up playing. It was like, it was like almost kind of the jazz career kind of went away when right. I moved here. <laughs> yeah. And some of that was okay. You know, um, and it's funny, I'm playing more jazz now than I ever have in, in, in Nashville. Yeah. In fact, after today, I've been, uh, I've been doing some stuff with um, Jeff Coffin and, and Jordan Pearlson as a trio, just for, where cool. we're getting together this afternoon. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's fun, you know, just to kind of exercise that, you know, and it's fun. I do mm-hmm. love it still. How did the gig with Lyle Lovett come around? Because you, you sort of ended up playing with him since, what, 94 or something 94, like that? 94, yeah. Um, um, was he living here at the time? No, well, he's actually never lived here. He's always oh, lived okay. in um, in Texas. But yeah. uh, um, I had uh, when I was in college, I remember when the um, large band record came out. Lyle Levin and large band record came out in 1990, and I would see him on the Tonight Show or I'd hear a couple of things, and I goes, "That guy's cool." <laughs> that was a very cool concept that he had, yeah. or whoever's idea that w- that was of putting that kind of music all together was pretty yeah. genius. Yeah. I, I think I, I must've seen him on tonight show. Cause he was on constantly at that time period. Yeah. And I remember I bought that record and I go, wow, you know, and I said, well, wouldn't that be fun? And I kept that in my mind kind of from then on, you know, when I moved to Nashville, I said, well, maybe I could pursue that. And so I kind of asked, Oh, wow. Lots of people. Okay. Who are his people? And uh, like, Oh, okay. This person plays with him or this person plays with him. And, were there guys in his band at the time that lived in Nashville? Oh yeah, like Matt Rawlings, you know, on piano. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and um, and then I kind of found out who managed him. They found that you know that Ken Levitan managed him, and Tony Brown, of course, was involved with his career, and um, so I, I kind of figured out who to ask, and and I and I said uh, you know like in Ken Levitan's person, there was a publicist that Allison had at the time who said oh I'll help you write a letter and I you know I wrote a letter to him saying I, I wow band or I'd love to you know if he's ever in the need of a, a bass player for that yeah and and I had met Ken and um and then Will Botwin who was also uh, a manager on in the New York side of his career i don't know i, I remember trying to get like multiple people handled at the time i bet and um and so i met him and will had heard me uh um play kind of sit in it was another one of these times where i'd sit, sat in with allison on on um on her show just for a song or two and he happened to be at the song at the show at the bottom line and and i said oh yeah well you know i love you know what Lyle does if he ever needs that. So I was, you know, I was really kind of ambitious in terms of finding that. Wow, that, that's so cool, man! That you actually pursued it. Yeah, and uh, so I, I and I remember I was out. I was working with Peter Rowan, and we were having we were weren't working very much. And Ken, when I talked to him initially, he said, "Oh, we, you know, he's already got somebody with you know keep you in mind." And then I thought, okay, well, let me just call him again and see what see what's going on, even if it's not for Lyle. And I caught him at the exact right time. Wow. And, and I said, oh, well, okay, yes, Lyle may need, a, may need somebody. And so then we started this dialogue that went on for about a month. I talked to various people. I talked to his musical director. Just, yeah, I think they were kind of like, well, who is this guy? And, and, and Tony Brown had heard me play one time. And so he vouched for me saying, oh, yeah, this guy probably do it. Had you worked with Matt Rawlings at that point? No, I'd never worked with him. Okay. And... Uh, 
Um, but I, of course, heard of him and, you know, and heard him. Yeah. Uh, it ended up being something where I found out that I got the gig 10 days before the tour was going to start. Oh, wow. And uh, so, you know, I was like, you know, so we had, he had five records up to that point, I think. Yeah. So you had a shit yeah. ton of material to learn. And- oh, gosh. Yeah. It was a ton of material to learn. And the guy who had, who was on the gig already was fantastic. It was this guy, John. It was his first record that he had done with upright bass. So the record needed upright bass. Yeah. And um, it was a guy, John Leftwich, who had played on the record, but decided he didn't want to stay on tour. tour. And I said, okay. And so I had to learn all his stuff. And mm-hmm. he came out. I They wanted to make a transition. So John played the first like six shows and I watched him just to see what I, what he did. And then we kind of switched and then, wow. I, then I played the shows, you know? And yeah. Uh, and then he would watch you and say, you're doing that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, it was, um, it was really cool how it all turned out. It was, you know, it was an exciting time. So was there, was there ever an actual audition? Like, did you have to show up at a rehearsal and like no. do your thing or you just got the gig and you I had just to got just the gig and just had to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it was just based on, you know, people vouching for me. And then, and that's been kind of his organization. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, I remember I had a, um, I, 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 like I met Lyle before playing. You want to know how long my hair was, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> how long is his hair? Priorities, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, so, you know, I, I guess I came across the right way. As short as you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you had to say, you know, a couple things or one thing like about keeping a gig like that going for so long. So that was 94. That's, yeah. uh, according to my advanced mathematical skills, that's um, 26, 26 years. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's, uh, that's incredible. Um, how have you managed to juggle that? Like, has that ever been a thing where you're, where it's hindered you from doing what you want to do or anything like that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like if you do anything for a long period of time, you know, same thing is like you'll get a lot of the same results, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and there's been tours where I didn't do it, you know, when we were, you know, uh, we've got kids. So there were certain tours that when okay. we were kids that I opted not to go out as long or, you know, or, or especially the, you know, the ones that happened during the summertime. <laughs> yeah. Has there been a lot of turnaround? Like how, from that band that you first joined in 94, is there anyone else that's still in the band? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of wow. people, you know, and some people that have been around, you know, like I was the young guy, I mean, the new guy for a long time. Yeah. And still when he introduces everyone, you know, like he's been talking about how long people, you know, I'm still not one of the, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I'm one, becoming one of the older guys. <laughs> and what's he like as a as a guy to work for? And has your role, like, are you the MD now or are you just... Well, there was one summer where I was, so there was, okay. there was a couple, you know, and then we, um, I, I don't know, we all kind of, kind of, I don't know, it's, we've got checks and balances in mm-hmm. that band, you know, like between, for the people that have been there a long time and the ones that are detail oriented, you know, we get asked to do this you know i mean he really he's in charge you know and does he does he get involved musically like does he is he involved in the arrangements and oh, things yeah. like that oh yes yeah. yeah okay yeah definitely i i think um but it was never you know i, I somebody put it well i was kind of like band quarterback or translator okay <laughs> yeah like everyone's so high caliber in that band it's not like you have to 
ride the drummer about how to play the drums. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Like, um, it was never really that, you know. And, right. And, and I could feel sometimes it would be easy to ups, overstep your bounds, mm-hmm. and just you know because everybody's there, and every you know that's probably one of the reasons why it's it's hard to imagine not doing it in some ways because. Mm-hmm. The calibers, I mean, like it spoiled me right away. Probably one of the classiest acts in, in touring biz, I'd yeah, imagine. Yeah, and just everyone is, you know, just a precision and and, and we never rehearse. You know, we mm. I think the most we ever rehearsed was for a tour in, <laughs> excuse me, 95, where we, you know, was more of a production rehearsal than anything else. Mm. We rehearsed for like two or three days, but now we never do. You know, it just right. shows up and it's just pretty much where we left off. So in those 26 years, have you ever, like, has there ever been a chunk of time when that, when he hasn't toured or anything? Yeah, there were, there were you know, like certain years, like a crazy amount, mm-hmm. you know, and then some years, not very much at all. And um, do you get a lot of notice about how that's going to play out? Or do you just kind of have to be obligated to him? For- well, in some ways, yes. I mean, it's kind of, it's nice. I mean, they're they're really disappointed if you can't do it, you know? Right. And sometimes you do have to kind of give advance, you know, uh, notice on stuff like that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there's been different managements over the years. Some give you way too much notice. Like, what are you doing a year from now? You right. Know, oh, I don't know, you know, <laughs> other ones that are like, okay, well, we have this in, in a week. Can you do it? You know? And, and, um, so both of those can be difficult. Yeah, both of those can be difficult, you know. When you do other stuff, like say, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk to you for a minute about the Frizzell stuff that you did, yeah. which was, that was a real like chunk of time where you seemed to play, you played on a bunch of his, yeah. you know, my, my favorite records of his oh. really are all with you on it or in that era anyway, there's like five or six in a row and you're on uh-huh. at least three or four of them. Was that something that uh, interfered at all like with the Lyle Lovett situation? Not very often. And, okay. you know, and, and there, there was sometimes what, you know, and, and, and at that time period, it was uh, less of a rotation of players, like for me, for mm-hmm. the bass chair. And so I, <clears throat> I did kind of miss out on some of the bill stuff a little bit more right. the other way around. What was the first Frizzell thing you did? Was that Nashville? Yeah, it was Nashville. Okay. And so how did that project come together? I've had Bill on the show actually, and he talked a bit about oh. that, but had you, had you played with him before or anything no. or did that just come out of the blue? And I'd really ever, never heard of him. Probably. Okay. And, and they, yeah, there was a couple people that they were doing. Um, I, I believe it tied to Kyle Lenning um, who was part of uh, Electra Asylum at that time for, you know, in, in partnership, I think with Nunsa. somehow he was instrumental in that. Okay. And, there were enough people that kind of thought, oh, okay, uh, you know, they originally weren't going to have bass, and then they were suggesting bass, you know, it was probably good to have bass on it. And um, they, um, there were enough people in that camp and who had already been hired saying, oh, well, Victor would be really good at this because he can kind of, you know, he's done a lot of bluegrass and country, but also knowledge and jazz, yeah. you know, and kind of be a little bit of both. And, you know, and so I got recommended for that. And, and I remember hearing about, you know, people's lighting, eyes lighting up. Oh, you're going to do that. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it seems like, you know, and I talked to him on the phone one time. He seemed like a nice guy. Yeah. He's very nice, very quiet. And I hadn't heard any of the music prior to what, you know, it's funny for that record and a couple other records. It seemed like, well, if he was going to send me music ahead of time, it always got to me like 
after I had already started on something or, or like a day after I had left to go do it. Really? And so yeah. I, I didn't, I, I didn't hear anything we did. And I remember the first day it was just, we, we started playing, uh, there was a tune that didn't make it on the record. That's really cool. Um, and where to do that record? Uh, Sound Emporium. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Sound Emporium A. And I was like, oh, wow. This is, this is really amazing. You know, it's just like. It's immediately. Kind of, yeah, immediately. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like what I was saying about what the drummers were, you kind of feel like, oh, okay, I know what to do here. Right. Like, this is totally comfortable and everything is laid out what you're supposed to do here. With his music, like, I know that he kind of gets extremely involved in the arrangements, obviously, and, like, writes parts out for people. Was he providing you with stuff yeah. for you to play? He was. Wow, okay. Um, I mean, there was a lot of notation and that kind of stuff. And, and and are you a good reader? You must be. I wouldn't say I'm a great reader. You know, like, if, if I can have a couple days that part of my brain comes back. But, right. like, you black page you know <laughs> I, I get scared and then and then um and then after a while it comes back okay but he was laying n- notation on you yeah okay and, but nothing really hard okay like it, most of the stuff would just be like a you know like quarter notes and eighth notes and no crazy dotted tied figures and that and so the core of that band was you bill i guess jerry douglas and was it Sam Bush playing mandolin on that? No, it was Adam Steffi. Adam Steffi, okay. Yeah. Um, was there anybody else that was sort of core? Rock played. Oh, yeah. Pat Ferguson on a, on a couple things. He and plays it, harmonica or what is he? He played harmonica on that. Okay. And then, um, but Jerry actually came into the, he was not on the first round of, of oh. sessions. Jerry came on the second round of Okay. The opening tune that was on the second round. Of, of so something. you did one session, then he, then they all went away, and then you reassembled. To yeah. okay, what was that for any particular reason, or I think just tunes, or uh, you know, uh-huh. or one one other element. And I, I, the, the first session was longer, and then the second one was just a couple of days. When that came to get like clearly that record was magical on a lot of levels. Uh, you know, I I felt it as a fan and music listener, and I'm sure you did as a musician because it comes across that way. Did you? Was there talk about it becoming like a thing with a, a touring band and stuff? Or I mean, Bill changes his. Oh yeah, he seems yeah. to take left turns like all the time. So yeah. like, was that just a thing? And then he was done and wanted to do something else. We didn't do very much. I mean, we you know there's there's <laughs> just a, a couple of we did a, a couple of shows. Gosh, what was it? Was it sessions on something street? Uh, remember that pro- great program that was in- was that a New York thing? Yeah. David Byrne hosted that show. Um, okay. At that particular time, we did that one show, and um, and then there was there was a handful of dates, maybe like four or five. Oh, that's it. Yeah, just of wow. Uh, with Jerry, myself, and and Bill. Okay. Um, yeah, there was a great show at Saint Anne's Cathedral. Yeah, it was very short. It's the same way with the Gone Just Like a Train record, you know. Um, yeah, how, so how, I mean that's a totally different concept, but but equally as inspired and yeah, that's awesome. My favorite. I think that's yeah. My can can you tell me anything about that session? Yeah, um, uh, you know that was the one with Jim Keltner, yeah. and I remember we rehearsed at a place called the Alley Cat in Los Angeles, and um, you know and I remember going, and it was my first experience with Jim, and um, I was like, oh yeah, this is nice, you know, and you know it was it. But when we got into the studio and I heard his sense of 
how to make drums sound. It was just like, whoa, this is... It's otherworldly. Yeah. And and that record is like, it's on display, like on basically no other record, I think, oh. of, of his. <laughs> yeah. I, I Yeah, I just, it's so, it was so interesting to play with him. And he had these little, at the time, you know, and then any time that I've played with him after that point, it's it's it's, it's like a different thing he's into. Every, right. And um, like this this particular one, he was into these things called stoms. Oh, yeah. The toms with snares, right? Yeah, toms with snares, but little bitty toms. So they, they sounded like, <laughs> like, like, you know, like nothing else, like a, like a totally other snare happening. You know, and then another time he was into these plastic Mastro snare drums and and then this calfskin bass drum, you know, with, with actual fur on it. And On that record, are you playing through amps and stuff or are you just playing acoustic? I don't think I plugged into an amp, but it, it's a combination okay. of the... Of the um, Pickups and yeah, the big just the one BP one hundred. Okay, I think I was going into an evil twin DI on that one. Yeah, um, and then just mic there, but that was at Old Henry Studios in um, I think off of was it Lancashire in Los Angeles or Burbank. Okay, and done like in a couple days, kind of thing, or yeah, like three days, three or four. Yeah, days. amazing. And it's funny. I have I have all of the outtakes too of that record. Oh yeah. Um, dat of all things like wow was that mostly just like you guys like bill had heads and tunes and then you would just play for hours kind of thing is that how it went down yeah nice and uh yeah because we rehearsed a little bit but then you know it didn't um some of the stuff you know was because you know because like as you said you know a lot of the stuff is arranged so some of it kind of played itself yeah like um look out for hope that was kind of that the that one had less of an arrangement than, than like blues for Los Angeles, you know, where it was. Right. What about good dog, happy man? That was, that, that's actually probably my favorite of, of, the, yeah, of those ones that, that we've talked about. I kind of studied steel with Greg Lee. So, so oh. that record for me, like for, for like a steel, from a steel point of view, that's like one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. Too. yeah. Oh, that's, um, yeah. It's a toss up really between this. I think there was something magical about the recording of the good dog. I mean, the, uh, gone just like a train. Yeah. Gone just trying to get train record. That was kind of like, I have, different different memories of it but the but the, yeah the good dog and happy man record that was i mean it just it felt like okay we're familiar as a trio and now we have these really other beautiful expressive elements that are now happening was that the first time that greg had been in that situation with bill yeah i think it might have been uh, you know they may have done something before i, I it's funny when i was um we had well, I was mentioning that trio with uh, with Jerry and myself when we did those just those samples. I think that's where they may have first met on one of those dates. Oh, okay, yeah, that's been a fruitful relationship. Those yeah. two. Yeah. What are you What are you doing these days? Like musically, like what's what's around the corner for you? You've got this new place. Are you producing records these yeah, days? Yeah, producing stuff. And um, gosh, um, yeah, I'm just on whoever will have me. <laughs> is the Lyle Lovett touring machine starting to rev up at all, or is it just Deadsville out there? They had talked about putting some dates on the calendar, but then you know it keeps you know you never know never know one. Yeah, and who's going to come? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I think all of us have a little glimmer of thinking that the that the, there's light at the end of the tunnel with you know the vaccine happening, and you know we're hearing about little things. Uh, all around that maybe things will start to pick up but uh as far as like local shows do you have any i'm trying to think the, i think the last time i saw you 
was um I think you were playing at um the twelve the twelve South Tap Room is where I saw you last. Oh gosh, a while ago, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a good two or three years ago probably. Um was that with Jim Oblon? Or was it, it was probably with Jim Oblon. Yeah. Yeah, we've been doing like a weekly get together at the studio and playing really loud. With yeah. Jim? Yeah, it's great. I thought he I thought he moved away. I thought he doesn't live here anymore. He did. You know, he he uh he he had plans to do that and then all the pandemic happened and he had an arrangement and then so he just ended up staying. Oh, okay. So we've been playing together uh, as a trio with him and and uh, uh well myself and and Pete Abbott on drums. Nice. Yeah, probably that same group that you saw and Okay. Yeah, just really fun. Yeah. yeah. I love that gig. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> Who else like locally do you play with regularly or like, I mean, I know these days nobody, but like yeah. in theory. Um... I mean, like the trio I mentioned with Jordan Pearlson and Jeff Coffin, we've been doing right. that a bit. And that's fun because there's no other harmonic information other than me and, you know, and, and Jeff. So it's like, it's, it's, there's a lot of space. You know, uh, there's there's no other chordal instrument. Where would you guys do that? Like a Rudy's or something? We did a the thing last year with uh, Near Felder and uh, Keith Carlock and Jeff and I. We did that at Rudy's and a couple other places. But okay. yeah, you know, I mean, m- mostly it's just like streaming things right now. And, yeah. You know, and and I yeah I did a, a thing with my group at Rudy's a couple months ago, and then when you say your group, who's in that? Well, I do that. You know, for for the solo album materials, I do that with Todd Lombardo. Okay. Guitar and sometimes electric guitar, and then um, Robert Crawford on drums, and uh, keep great keyboard player uh, Demarco Johnson. And cool. And so that's kind of some of that that material. And is there going to be a uh, Victor Krauss record? They've been few and far between. There hasn't been yeah, one for a long time. Two, and then the, then I did that duet record with um, Maeve Gilchrist. And uh, that's a beautiful record. Oh, thank you. Um, I'd like to make them. I'd like it when other people pay for them. You know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, when there's a label support to do it, yeah. You, um, you don't feel a burning desire to do solo records. You're 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 happy to to play on other people's records. Yeah, I mean, like. every, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I I think it will probably come back. You know, to do it. I mean, I have I have material to do it, but I I, um, I, I think what I like about those solo, uh, you know, I, I have trouble finishing things. You know, okay. I, I, you know, like in terms of my own stuff, and and I think I'm really proud of those those records existing because i actually finished them <laughs> you know because it's hard yep. lee townsend cracking the whip yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you know now that i have the space and and there's been enough stuff to do and having you know having kids three kids is you know oh, you got three busy. kids yeah man. yeah so it's uh, um it's not as easy but you know now that i have the space and it's actually detached from every the rest of your life and right you know i've this, this building's been up since, um, you know, where I've actually been in it since just October. So it's, uh, um, it's pretty nice. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be nice to, to get onto something. Well, uh, thanks man. Thanks so much for spending all this time with me. I, yeah. I, I know I took up a lot of your time, but, but <laughs> I just had a lot of stuff to ask you about. Yeah. I hope that's okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm flattered that you want me to, to be part of this. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Victor. And, uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. All right. See you. <laughs> All right, that was my conversation with Victor Krauss. Thank you guys so much for listening and sticking around with me right to the end. I really appreciate it. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then.
Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.